The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Ms. Jessica Almi. She is the Center for Science and the Public Interest Deputy Director of Nutrition Policy. Jessica holds a JD from the New York University School of Law and MS from Tufts University. She is a member of the Bar in New York and the District of Columbia. She is also the co-editor of a report that we're going to be talking about today titled Rigged, Supermarket Shelves for Sale. Welcome, Ms. Almy. It's great to have you. Well, thank you so much for having me. I love this report about the supermarket because I enjoy helping consumers make the best choices they can in the supermarket and beyond to improve the quality of their lives and protect their health. And we share that mission, I think, in our work. But I'm curious to know, what was it that led the Center for Science and the Public Interest to delve into the behind-the-scenes situations at supermarkets in particular? Well, as I'm sure you know, people make different choices based on how options are presented to them. And so we've looked at this in a variety of contexts. You know, when people get a menu at a Subway sandwich shop, people who get a short menu that highlights the lowest calorie sandwiches are more likely to choose the lower calorie sandwiches than those who have a longer mixed menu. Or a study showed that serving adults several portions of broccoli, carrots, and peas rather than a larger portion of a single vegetable can increase vegetable consumption. So we know that the way options are presented to people changes what they actually choose for themselves. And we were curious to know whether the supermarket really was a neutral space, a space that was set up with customers' convenience and ease of shopping in mind, and maybe even their health. And what we found when we pulled back the curtain is that there is no neutral. Of course, it wouldn't make sense to put a random assortment of products throughout a supermarket space, but it's not even set up in a way that's intended to mirror the way that customers shop. Instead, what we found is that some places in the store themselves drive purchases, like the displays close to the door, and you put anything there and it will sell, which led to the question, who decides what goes there and what kind of factors go into making those decisions? And what RIGGED really shows is that um, who decides is, the, is a matter of contract between supermarkets and food manufacturers and that the shelves in the supermarket are for sale just as much as any of the products are. You know, they're basically rental spaces for different kinds of products. And knowing what we do about behavioral economics, this study of how choices are presented to people and how it changes what they choose for themselves, we really found that these insight into these contracts helps illuminate how the supermarkets really are set up to further corporate interests not necessarily customers' help. Yeah, it's interesting. I think it's because I'm a dietitian. I'm so curious about supermarkets and how food is sold. And I noticed that supermarkets, regardless of where we are, you know, whether we're in California, whether we're in the Midwest, the East Coast, 
the setup is usually the same. You head right into the produce department, and then all of your refrigerated space is around the edge. We often tell people shop the perimeter of the store because that's where you're going to find your fresh foods. But there are places that are pretty tricky for the shopper, especially the impulsive shopper or the shopper who is going into the store with hungry children. There are places that are traps for us, and this report really illuminates where those spaces are and how much food manufacturers have to spend. To get their food located in those hot spots, so let's talk about some of those hot spots first. Real estate, if you will. Where are the places where food manufacturers are going to have to spend the most to have their products located there? Well, I think that it's really interesting that there's this common sense idea that if you shop the perimeter of the store, you're going to be in good shape because. Companies are not actually paying huge amounts of money to go in the center of the store, in the middle of the aisles. Those are actually probably the parts of the store that have the lowest rents. Where they are paying is along that perimeter because everyone enters through the same way. Everybody exits the store through the registers. And so those places that are on those pathways that everybody walks are the most valuable. So specifically, what we're talking about are end caps, which are end-of-aisle displays, the kind of display you would see at the end of the aisle. A lot of people think that it signals that there's a great sale on the item that's there. That may be the case. There may be a price reduction, but more often than not, it's just that it's meant to be promoted. It's a seasonal item. The food manufacturer has paid to put it there, and they're hoping to boost sales. And then the prime real estate of the supermarket, the what our experts called the beachfront property of the supermarket is the checkout. And that's because checkout is eight times as profitable as other parts of the store. Now, it's one of the locations most likely to prompt purchase. And when I first heard that, I thought, well, I never buy anything from checkout. How could that possibly be the case? I shop all the time. I shop the rest of the store and never buy anything from checkout. And um, what I came to realize is that I actually do sometimes buy things from checkout, but it's on impulse and it's almost below my conscious level of thinking. And, and many people do. And the markups are so high in that space. And the products that are there are intended to, to be things you can consume instantly and that you would want to buy on impulse that it ends up being really, really valuable real estate in the store. But you know, it's not just the end caps and the checkout. There are also displays you'll see once you start looping around the supermarket. You'll see displays in the produce section for things that are not produce. You'll see it along the deli. A lot of times it's chips and soda. Even in the freezer section, you'll see like little shelves that are providing chocolate sauce or toppings for your ice cream or cookies to go with the ice cream. And all of those kind of add-on places are being bought by the companies whose products are there. Yeah. Okay. Let's think of a of something where we have an applied example, the Super Bowl. There will be displays as soon as you walk into the supermarket, these cardboard displays. You almost have to finagle your cart around them. They're everywhere. And they're usually for, as you mentioned, these snack foods, high sugar, high salt, high fat, highly processed, things that dietitians are trying to encourage their clients to eat less of, and yet they're everywhere. It takes such great willpower to make a conscious decision in the supermarket not to buy them. As you say, 
you're in the checkout and it's almost under your radar. You just automatically reach for these things. Absolutely. You know, I think it's helpful to think about all the ways in which food is marketed to people. The displays at Super Bowl are a great example of promotions. They're clearly celebrating the upcoming game and they're clear, almost advertisements for the foods that are there, just the way the billboard that you pass on the way to the store is. And even the, I think the store circular most people would recognize as advertising. But there are all sorts of other marketing strategies that companies use, too. The formulation and packaging of individual products is a type of marketing, pricing, including store coupons and the two-for-one deals you see, and then placement. And placement is probably the most hidden and yet most powerful form of food marketing. Companies are spending a lot more money to get their products in particular places around the supermarket than they are on advertising. And that's because it boosts sales. Uh, significantly. So there's a really interesting study from Norway where researchers swapped out candy and gum at checkout in two stores with dried fruit and dried fish, of course, because it's <laughs> right. <laughs> and they had two different phases of the, the intervention. The first phase, they just swapped the things out. They didn't make any kind of announcement. And then the, the second phase, they kept it the way it was and they posted signs that promoted the health benefits of the dried fruit and dried fish. And they found that both phases boosted sales of the products that have been put in checkout, but there was no additional benefit from adding those signs. So to me, that study kind of stands for the proposition that the placement of products is more powerful than their promotion to customers. And I think it's because it slips under our radar. You know, we do use our willpower over and over and over as we go through the supermarket. You know, you have 40,000 items in the average supermarket. So you're making a number of choices. If you bring a list, you can minimize it a little bit, but you're still choosing among brands, among sizes. Maybe there's a price promotion that you had anticipated do you want the lower sodium version? Do you, should you get the non-BPA can? You know, you're making all these decisions as you go through the store. And so your willpower gets worn down by all the decision-making. And that's another reason that checkout is so successful from a food company perspective is after you've made all those decisions, you're much more likely to give in to your impulse to just grab something that looks yummy. And it's so much worse with kids. When you talk about shopping with kids, that's the number one demographic we hear from about checkout are parents who have to shop with their kids. And even if the parents keep their willpower up, how do you, after you've said no so many times throughout the store, just one more opportunity for conflict. And, you know, parents are remarkably good at saying no. They say no usually eight or nine times every time they say yes in the store. But it's just not fair to up that conflict by putting really enticing items for kids right at the checkout. And yet that's what this hidden system of contracts behind the scenes sets up for us. Yeah, and especially when you've been working all day and you're tired, your guard is down. And then I've also read where you can say no a gazillion times, but once you let your guard down and say yes, then that opens the door for more begging. So just, just a little heads up for parents, you've got to stick your heels in the ground and stick with that no, even though it's so very hard. Well, I want to talk about the checkout placement for a moment because I want to talk about just how much it costs to be there. So in this report, it's mentioned that brokers said it could cost between 3 to $5 per inch to get one candy bar at the checkout, and it could cost upwards $5 million for one candy bar to secure a spot 
on a shelf at the checkout in the 50 biggest supermarket chains for several months to a year. So you have to wonder who gets to play this game, right? Only the big manufacturers could afford these kinds of fees. And what consumer would understand this kind of brokerage where companies have to pay so dearly to have that coveted spot? That is a great point. I mean, I thought the numbers were staggering. When we first heard them, you know, the brokers were telling us 3 to $5 per inch per checkout, per store, and yeah. we started doing the math. $5 million for that one candy bar is one single slot in that whole array of candy that's at checkout. So it's really, really big money. And it's really important, particularly to candy makers, bottom line, because so much of their sales is those single-serve candy bars that are mostly found at checkout. But I do think that it's a really important point. Only the biggest companies can buy those slots. It makes it very, very hard for anybody who wants to innovate a new product. Imagine you come up with a product that is as delicious as a candy bar, but doesn't have the saturated fat, doesn't have the added sugar, you know, something that actually promotes people's health. That's a billion-dollar idea, but (laughs) unless you have the financial wherewithal to buy that spot in those biggest supermarket chains, no customer's ever going to see your product, and it's going to end up languishing in your warehouses. So it's a big barrier to entry for the smaller companies, particularly innovators, but it's also, you know, it really diminishes what customers' choices are. So if you look at the selection at checkout, in average store, and, you know, all the supermarkets more or less look the same. You're going to see there are primarily a few big candy companies that are making all the different variations on a theme in that checkout. So you're going to see candy bars from Mars and Nestle and maybe some Mondelez and Hershey, and that's about it. It's those big guys who are playing in that space, and there's very, very little room for anybody else. Exactly. Lest we think we have so many choices in the supermarket, that falls under this umbrella term that I like to use called the illusion of choice. Let me take one moment and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Jessica Almy, and she is the Deputy Director of Nutrition Policy at the Center for Science and the Public Interest, and we are talking about a brand new report that she co-edited titled Rigged Supermarket Shelves for Sale, and it takes us behind the scenes how much do food manufacturers have to spend to pay and stay in the supermarket and on the real estate that they want. Let's take a moment and talk about Clemmy's because Clemmy's is an example of what you were just talking about with regard to unless you're a big player, you really can't afford to play. And here's a gentleman who came up with an ice cream that was low in sugar, lactose-free. It was delicious, and yet he really struggled with this. Why don't you tell the story? Yeah, so John Gordon is an entrepreneur who's led a very interesting and varied life, and in 2008, he was told by his doctor that he had prediabetes. He also had a pint-a-day ice cream (laughs) addiction, (laughs) so he found himself in a really hard spot, and what he ended up doing was trying to create an ice cream that would be delicious for him and sugar-free. 
Now, CSPI, where I work, the Center for Science and Public Interest, has concerns about some sugar alternatives. And I should say, this was not health food, but it was an ice cream that was safer for people who have prediabetes or diabetes. And so John Gordon created this ice cream, found flavors that he thought was fantastic, and went about trying to get it into supermarkets. And what he found was that the ice cream in the supermarket is dominated by two companies, Nestle, which produces Haagen-Dazs, Dryers, Edie's, and Skinny Cow, and Unilever, which sells Ben and Jerry's, Briars, and Klondike. So he did some back-of-the-envelope calculations, and he said, you know, once you have those companies and all of those brands that they make, and you add in the store's own private label ice cream, the one that, you know, has the 365 for Whole Foods or the Safeway Select for Safeway banner on it, What that left him in any given supermarket was that only two of the typical 24 freezer cases for desserts were available to other brands. So it was completely dominated by these big guys and the store's own ice cream. But he was determined to get his ice cream into those freezer cabinets. So he went to the supermarkets and started brokering deals. And he found that getting into most retail chains meant paying a shelving fee, which they call a slotting fee. And he had to pay this fee for every new flavor that he wanted to introduce into the store. And so he created a number of flavors and had to pay a number of different fees. And, of course, the same fee would apply if it were in a different size or a different kind of formulation. So every time there was a variation on the theme, you have to pay this fee. He ended up paying about a million dollars to get into some grocery stores. He told us that he paid $30,000 to one chain and $50,000 to another And that got him into some stores in each of those chains. But he was never able to afford the $550,000 charge it cost to get five flavors into a bigger chain. And that's a single supermarket chain, $550,000. Imagine kind of to give you a sense of the scale, there are more than two dozen really large chains that dominate in the United States. And so you kind of can multiply that out and see how much it would cost to get into all of them. And then he found, even after he'd paid that initial shelving fee, kind of to introduce the product for the first time, he also had to pay placement fees, which are sometimes called pay-to-stay, or we call them rent. (laughs) So basically it was cash or free cases of, of his ice cream to the store. And these costs really added up. So he might have to give a case to this store and a case to that store and pay some cash here. And he estimated that for a chain with a thousand stores, he could pay between forty thousand and sixty thousand dollars a year. So, when you consider there are nine chains that have a thousand or more stores plus dozens more that each have hundreds of stores, that was was really adding up. But the thing that really did him in, and we should tell your your listeners right now that you can't get clummies in your local store; it's bankrupt, no longer in business. Right. Is that it's this whole idea of a planogram. The planogram is meant to be a map for where the different products go on the shelves. So everybody's on the same page. You know, I stock the Unilever ice cream here and the Nestle ice cream there, and then there's the space for Clemmies. But what John found was that it wasn't the stores that were drawing up the planograms. Instead, they were allowing the companies that were the biggest seller in their store to become what they called the category captain. And so those category captains were able to drop the planogram that showed where not only where their products went, but where all of their competitors' products went on the shelf. So for most of the chains that John was doing business in, that meant Nestle was the category captain for frozen desserts. And he said that he had a real hard time getting his ice cream into 
those chains. And I'll quote him directly here. He said that I wanted six flavors, but they'd tell a chain only to carry two or three. And then he told us that they'd relegate him to a lower shelf in a less desirable corner of the freezer case, far from their products. So as a result of this, his sales went up, but he ended up declaring bankruptcy, and the brand no longer exists. Yeah, isn't that a shame? I mean, here you've got an entrepreneur who makes a product that people want, it tastes good, and yet he could not get his product there. So you have to wonder, after I read this report, I started to see the grocery store in a much different way. This report really pulls back the curtain, and I saw how limited my choices really were, and that my food dollars were going to really a handful of food companies that might be masquerading under different brand names, but it was still the same handful of big players that were controlling largely what I was going to be putting into my body or my family's body. Yeah, it's pretty shocking. It's changed the way I look at the supermarket, too. And this information wasn't easy to get. So we actually had this report created. We hired an investigative journalist to dig into the the facts here because this was such secretive information. One of the things that really struck me when I first started to look at this was just how hard it was to get. So there's a whole history of the government sort of kind of looking into this issue but never being quite successful. And so I found it really surprising and illuminating to have this investigation after all of the false starts that others had taken to get there. And just by way of example, back in 1999, there was some concern that this system was keeping the little guys out and was anti-competitive. And so the U.S. Senate Committee on Small Business and Entrepreneurship held a hearing to find out how these fees were affecting what companies were able to to get into the supermarkets. And at that hearing, people hid themselves behind a screen and they spoke through a voice-altering apparatus because they didn't want to be on the record as opposing this system. It was so deeply entrenched and there was such secrecy around it. And then at least two other occasions, the GAO, the Government Accountability Office, and the Federal Trade Commission have tried to, to look at this issue. And each time it's been less than successful. A GAO staffer, when he had to testify before Congress about the results of their investigation into this, he said that he'd worked for the GAO for 31 years, and it was the first time he had to report to a committee that he'd been unsuccessful in trying to carry out his work. This is really a part of the supermarket industry that is shrouded in secrecy, and I think it's really important for people to know that the way that the supermarket is set up is as much about the companies that are trying to sell you their products and their interest in getting you to buy more of specific products as it is about your comfort or interest or your long-term goals for yourself or your family. Right. I thought it was interesting. You've got a section of this report that talks about, you know, how did we get here? And I was really curious to see Walmart listed in their story and that for a long time they did not have these placement and slotting fees. But And I couldn't believe that they said this. They said that, well, they've started to have these fees now because they're being pressured to pay a higher wage to their employees. Yeah. It's shocking. It is shocking. And I think it, it shows that it's a big part of the business. When we look at how much it costs relative to other kinds of income for the retailer, it's a big part of their income. It's a big part of their business strategy. You know, we looked at 
Safeway actually had reported some of their, they were a publicly traded company and they reported trade allowance, which includes these kinds of fees in their SEC filings, so their filings to the government about, about their earnings. And it, we saw that it was really significant to their bottom line. It could make the difference between a good year and a bad year. And it's a really important cost for manufacturers, too. It's 15 to 20% of a manufacturer's cost. So it's the second largest expense that manufacturers have after the cost of creating the product itself. So it's big money that's being spent. It's not a few dollars here and a few dollars there. It certainly adds up. Yeah. Well, I thought it was interesting. You had the marketing budgets of food manufacturers in the report, and you show what has happened over time. So in 1968, food manufacturers were spending 28% of their budget on trade promotion, and then 72% on advertising, and then you go to 2010, and they're spending 70% on trade promotion and only 30% on advertising. So you can see how the dollars have really shifted to the retailer. Yeah, absolutely, and it's problematic because it's invisible to the consumer. So you know when you pass that billboard on the way to the store that the company Coca-Cola has paid to have a billboard to encourage you to buy their product and drink more Coca-Cola, but you don't necessarily know that the reason that the Coke is next to the deli case or that there is a Coke conveniently at checkout or on an end cap is because Coke has paid big money to be in those places in the store. You know, a lot of us shop on autopilot. We yeah. go the same route every time we go through the store. You grab the things. And so a lot of this marketing is below the radar and almost invisible until you, I love the phrase you use, pull back the curtain on it. Yeah. All of these invisible hands manipulating our decisions and our eating habits that we don't even know it. Let's talk about Frito-Lay because I thought this was a really interesting part. You know, you think at some point the food industries are going to get together. They're going to join forces and say, we're not doing this anymore. We're not playing this game. And Frito-Lay tried to say, no, we're not doing this. And they lost that fight. That's right. And I think there's another example of a company, Campbell, cutting back on its its spending and then seeing that its sales went down. And I think, on one hand, the supermarkets have a lot of power and are encouraging, (laughs) maybe to put it mildly, these companies to spend a lot. But also, placement in these particular locations in the supermarket is so essential to bringing sales. One example, and they typically, like I said, the center of the supermarket aisles is not the part of the store that costs the most. But if you think about sort of whether things are at your eye level or way down the bottom of the aisle or very high up, you know, most people are going to see and buy the products that are at their eye levels. And so that's another key part of the store. And if you have your product in the store and you have it in one place, on one shelf, down by somebody's knees, the likelihood that that product is going to be purchased is much, much lower than if it's at eye level in that aisle and it's also on the end cap and it's also available being promoted in the produce section or the deli or the freezer section and maybe it's available again as you're approaching the checkout. So this is an integral part of how supermarkets are set up. It affects people's shopping oftentimes without them even noticing. Well, I cannot thank you enough for being with me and explaining some of what is going on behind the scenes. The report, again, is Rigged Supermarket Shelves for Sale. It is published by the Center for Science and the Public Interest. You can go online. We'll provide a link 
with this radio program so that you can find it. If you need it right now, it is at cspinet.org backslash resource backslash rigged. I want to thank all of our listeners for joining us, and I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri, and I want to thank you, my guest, Ms. Jessica Almi. She is the Center for Science and the Public Interest Deputy Director of Nutrition Policy and co-editor of RIGGED. Thank you so much for this great interview. Thank you very much for having me.